right, if you have your journal, go ahead and pull it out and get it ready. And let me show you some curiosities in chapter number 11. Chapter 11, chapter 12, uh, and then the next week we'll go to chapter 14. And then we'll come back and pick up 13. 13 is really the conclusion. It's really the thesis statement of the whole book. And Pastor Jeremy will deliver chapter 13 in a few weeks for us. Uh, my task this morning, 11... Next week, chapter 12, as a round table, and then chapter 14. We're dealing with it in this way because chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 14 are three of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible, period. Some of the most discussed, most debated uh, passages anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, this morning I'll deal with the, probably the easiest one, if you call it that, but chapter 12 next week, Pastor Jeremy and David and I will sit right here and talk you through chapter 12 on spiritual gifts, tongues, will really be in chapter 14, but we'll go ahead and talk about the priest cursor, it's in chapter 12, and then in chapter 14 I'll deal with both tongues and let the women keep silent in the church, which are found in chapter 14. So you can see why these are the controversial passages in the New Testament. Uh, if you have your journal or uh, a paper Bible, uh, you may notice some curiosities here. We've been talking about uh, reading the Bible in paragraph form. Uh, uh, Miss McNair ordered me a Bible the other day because I was asking for this. And she found uh, CSB, I think it is, for me. And it has absolutely no chapter numbers or verse numbers in it anywhere. It's just purely paragraph form the entire Bible. And uh, she bought me a copy, and I've been reading it in my devotional time. It's, it's a little different not seeing those numbers because I grew up with that. Speaking of things I grew up with, let me digress a minute. Uh, one of the things that we as a church have to continually do is uh, honor tradition, but also challenge tradition. There's a balance there. We want to, let's just say there are 2,000 years of Christians who went before us, New Testament Christians, we want to know what they have to say because they're not all wrong, amen? They're not all wrong. 2,000 years of Christians before us got most everything right. But somewhere along the way, some things get distorted and broken. And as a church, we've been very open and honest talking about those things that got broken and distorted, realizing we were guilty in some of the distortions. I'll deal with some of those in today and in the coming weeks. What I want to say to the church as a whole is do not be afraid to challenge the status quo and and dig into the word of God and let's have awesome discussions like we will next week. We talk about spiritual gifts next week. Uh, Three of your elders, which are pastors, are going to talk to you about spiritual gifts and we're going to start with an apology because we mistaught you something. And we'll correct it next week. So don't miss next week, okay? Uh, But don't be afraid to do that. Uh, That's part of the growing process is to learn, uh, to learn from your mistakes, and and to try and find ways forward from that. Uh, As a church, we are are somewhere along the way, uh, evangelicals, or Baptists in particular, which is the tradition I came from, so when I beat up the Baptists, y'all just know that's my family I'm talking about, and I can talk about my, you can't talk about my family, but I can, okay? It's like that. And uh, so, I come from a Baptist tradition, and I want to just tell you a few things about I know most of you did too, and here's how I know. You're terrible clappers. <laughs> Absolutely horrendous clappers. Uh, and 
as developing disciple makers for the 21st century, you guys are going to have to learn to clap to Jesus. Or tear the book of Psalms out of your Bible. Because they are getting with it over in the book of Psalms. And somewhere along the way we lost that. It was bred out of us as Baptists. And either we have to stop being Baptist and start being Christian. I don't know what has to happen. But somehow we have to get worship back to being a full body contact experience. This is the way it was in the Bible. You guys are not Presbyterians. Okay? And my uncle is and he's listening right now. Love you, Tommy. I, just do not be so stoic. Okay? Do not be so serious. And... Let your heart pour out to God. Now, I say that, I'll use an I statement. I have incredible baggage as a pastor's kid. I was never allowed to move my body in any way during worship. I had to sing like this. You know, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. I, I could not move my, we weren't allowed to move our bodies. We weren't allowed to clap. And here's the biggie. We were never allowed to lift up our hands. Because that crossed like this line. That when you lifted your hands, the Holy Spirit invaded your body in some weird way and you talked in tongues. That's what we were taught as bad, but not really, but you know what I'm saying, it was implied. And so we had to run far away from that. And so this is how we ran far away from it. I'm just saying to you, as your pastor, I have baggage. I have a really hard time doing this. But if you want to test me, test me because I've already done it. Go home this afternoon, open up Google, click the images tab, type in the word worship, and press the enter key. And you tell me what pops up. This is worship. But I, now I struggle. This is me. Because I have incredible baggage. I was in bondage for so many years. I have trouble coming out of that. I want y'all to grow past me. And let yourself go. I mean, let yourself go. <laughs> Don't let yourself go. One of the things that my uncle's been coaching me on is try to use more precise language. Don't let yourself go. Some of you have already done that. All right, uh, let me just get to the message. Anyway, we'll work, on, we'll work on pep rally cheerleading later, okay? If you're looking at your Bible, here's what I want you to see. This was written as one long flowing letter in paragraph form. When Paul wrote this, he did not say, hmm, chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Verse 2, it was not written that way. Paul is there, and someone is writing with him in all of these New Testament letters, and Paul is saying, boom, 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 he's just pouring it out. And they're getting it down and probably saying, slow down, okay? It's just a paragraph, written in paragraph form like you'd write a letter. A curious thing happens now when you get to chapter 11, and you're going to see it in all the modern Bibles. Well, let me just put it to you this way. In the original, there are no numbers. So if I say original, I mean in a Greek manuscript, and there are thousands of copies, of there are no numbers. The numbers come in the modern Bibles. And when I say modern Bibles, I mean 1,200, 1,300, 1,400, 1,500. In Europe, as they began to produce Bibles, whole Bibles, Old and New Testament, they began numbering chapters and verses the chapter number divisions were not added until 1227 AD 1227 AD the chapter divisions in the New Testament were added by Stephen Langton a cardinal of the Catholic Church later elected as Archbishop of Canterbury in what is England 
And uh, he's the one who divided the, the New Testament into chapters. And then the Wycliffe uh, English Bible of 1382 was the first Bible that picked up his number division system of the chapters. And almost every Bible until this present hour has followed Langton's uh, division system of the chapters in the New Testament. Does that make sense? But here's the curious thing. 800 years of scholarship have revealed some things to us and caused us to want to make some adjustments to something that was done in the 1200s, okay? And you can, I'll show you why in just a minute. Uh, so the verse numbering system is a, is a different thing altogether. The verse numbering system was not added into the Bible until 1555. A Parisian printer named Robert Estienne, nobody calls him Robert Estienne, they call him Stephanus. Stephanus added the verse numbers. So when you say John 3.16, you're quoting Stephanus now. He added the 3.16 there for you, uh, just so we could all sync up to that verse very quickly. And that was added by Stephanus in 15. 55 the Geneva Bible picked it up as the numbering system in the Geneva Bible and it became the standard approach now between Langton and Stephanus to a chapter and verse division we have it even this morning in the Bible you're holding uh, just imagine how old that is now you're holding something that literally Christians for hundreds and almost thousand years have used this division system but scholarship, 800 years of it, has taken some leaps. And here's the curious thing you'll notice. Chapter 11, verse 1, in a paragraph Bible, if you have a journal, it's actually, you see how verse 1 is attached to chapter 10? It's not attached to chapter 11. Because now they know, as you read it, it makes sense. 11.1 is actually the conclusion of chapter 10. It is not the opening of a new thought in chapter 11. Verse 2 opens the new thought in chapter 11. <clears throat> Let me read chapter 10's conclusion, uh, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church. Try not to offend people. Try, try, we want to share the gospel with people. We don't turn people off to the gospel. Verse 33, just as I try to do to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now what's Paul challenging them to imitate? What example is he challenging them to follow? Build relationships. Don't offend people. Chapter 10 is about don't seek your own rights and squash everybody else's rights. In America, you have freedoms and you have rights, but sometimes your rights can trample on somebody else's rights. In the church, this is a problem. And he says, the church people, we have to be smart enough to know, let Holy Spirit use us in such a way, yes, we are free. You're just saying it, I'm free, free. Yes, you're free. But you can't use your freedom to hurt somebody else. Or, or to plug their ears or to turn them off from the gospel or to offend them in some way. And that's what Paul's saying. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Okay, what do you do, Paul, for me to imitate you? Give no offense in anything. To the Jews become Jew, to the Greeks become Greeks, you know, to, to the weak become weak. Whatever it takes to share the gospel so that people might be saved and hear the gospel. Chapter 11, verse 2 begins the new thought now. Let me read it. Now I praise you 
because you remember me in everything and hold fast the traditions I delivered just as I delivered them to you. As verse 2 opens chapter number 11, Paul is about to address two church traditions and uh, those church traditions are being kept by the people at Corinth and he says, let me give you a high five. Now he's really chewed them out for 10 chapters here. He's been snarky and sharp and like a father chastising his children comes to chapter 10 he opens he says now i praise you because you keep the traditions can anybody feel a big butt coming here in just a minute yeah Uh, but and that's what's about to happen i praise you because you keep the traditions they were keeping the traditions all right just as he delivered them but now they took those two two traditions in particular and totally messed them up and made them the opposite of what they were intended to be. Paul's praising them, but I'm going to have to give you some corrective. The first tradition, which is the first part of the chapter, so if you're taking notes in your journal, verse 2 down through 16, deal with the tradition that has to do with head coverings and how men and women interact in the public worship service. It has to do with freedom, it has to do with equality, it has to do with unity. It's the first 2 through 16. 17 through the end of the chapter deal with the second tradition that Paul wants to correct. And I'll just read verse 17. Now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better but for the worst. The second tradition that Paul is so upset about that he can't praise them You could write over it by verse 17 because the whole rest of the chapter is going to be in relation to the tradition of communion. They had messed up the Lord's Supper. And now it really meant for them the opposite of what it was supposed to mean. Paul had taught them that the Lord's Supper was about unity and community and togetherness and about being one body and about being together as the people of God and the Two places the Holy Spirit has chosen to dwell. Do you remember this from earlier chapters? Two places the Holy Spirit has chosen to dwell. The assembly of the church. You all are God's temple, he told them. And then he said to the individual, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple? What? Know ye? See me do KJV there? Just comes out of me. Uh, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you and you're not your own? You. The Holy Spirit has chosen to dwell in you individual believer and so because we are the people of God and because we are God's temple communion is about the togetherness of the body of Christ but they did something really peculiar with the Lord's Supper or communion I'll use the words interchangeably they had found a way to take something that was supposed to be uniting and turn it into something completely divisive leave it to the Corinthians or leave it to any of us To take something that God meant to pull us together and turn it into something that pushes people apart. Now, if you've been a Christian for long, you've been involved in communion where it was very exclusive. Now, I'll just leave that right there. You You can think through that as we're going through the text. So the net result is, Paul said, you're not the better, but you're what? You're worse off now. Yeah, you're keeping the Lord's Supper, praise God, but... The way you're doing it, you're not better off for doing it. You're actually worse off because of how you're doing it. So let me deal with the first half of the chapter very quickly, verses 2 through down through 16. And I've just entitled this section, The Battle of the Sexes. As we work through the text, 
I want you to ask yourself, what now I praise you because you keep the tradition, what tradition are we talking about? What tradition did Paul deliver to them? And how has that tradition affected now liberty and unity? And how has it affected how the men and women interact in the public worship? The Corinthians' abuse of this church tradition led to a division ultimately over a cultural dress code issue. This is what I really want you to sink your teeth into. The tradition that he gave them got misused so that it popped up a secondary issue in the congregation. And that secondary issue was, of all things, a dress code, a cultural dress code issue. So that now in the church of Corinth, they are divided over the issue of head coverings in worship. Now, I showed you pictures almost every week. And last week in particular, I went real slow and I said, look at the head coverings on all the women. Now, I did that for a reason, so that you would know this is not a 2,000-year-old argument. This argument is fresh as yesterday. This is still a thing. It's just not your thing. Praise God. Just not your thing. So let me read. While I'm reading verses 2 through 6, if you've got a journal... I want you to underline the word head. Every time we find the word head, you'll find, I think, at least 11 times in these short verses. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head. Now, let me just pause there. Do you see my head? Jesus is not sitting on my shoulders right now. So Jesus is not literally my head, is he? metaphorically okay just want you to see this metaphorically but i want you to know that christ is the head of every man and man is the head of woman and god is the head of christ every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. <gasps> and Paul's like, exactly. But if it would be a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. Now, I think 11 times there the word head shows up. So what I want you to know, first of all, is Paul is using wordplay. When he says head, he doesn't really mean the skull that holds my brain, my eyes, my ears, my lips. My... It's not really talking about my head. When Paul starts using head in verse 3, he's using it in a non-literal metaphorical way. To make matters even more confusing, in verses 4 and 5, Paul uses head as both a metaphor and the literal thing that holds your brain. He mixes the language in verses 4 and 5. Now, here's what you need to know. The English word head is brought into your text from a Greek word, kafale. So, if you had a Greek manuscript in front of you, every time you're seeing the word head in that Greek manuscript, it would say kafale. It gets translated as head into English. And here's the danger with the English word head. 
Head in English is an incredibly nuanced word. For example, go to the Cambridge Dictionary. Head can be a noun. Head can be a, a verb. Jeff, could you just head over there and, and pick that up? Head can be an adjective. Head waiter. Head of the board of directors. Head of the deacon board. Head's an incredibly nuanced word. In my study, I just said, okay, it's too confusing. Let me just go to the, the noun form. The noun form of head in the Cambridge Dictionary has at least 15 different definitions. 15 different, just for the noun form of the English word head. Let me make it as simple as I can. In Latin, German, or English, head is a synonym for authority. Head of the company. Head of the elders. Head of the school board. In English, head can be a synonym for authority, but in Greek, it's not so. In Greek, kafale head is a synonym for the word source, as in the Mississippi headwaters are somewhere up in Ohio. Head means source from which something emanates. So, with, while both authority and head could possibly make sense in verse 3, they don't make any sense in the rest of the verses, especially when Paul draws his conclusion in verses 11 and 12. Let me read verse 11 and 12 where Paul does draw his conclusion. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man. No chauvinist amens there. Okay. And a man is not independent of woman. No feminist amens there, please. But what Paul is saying is, Neither are independent of the other. Verse 12. For just as woman, underline these two words, came from man, so man comes through, underline those two words, woman, and all things, underline it, come from God. Clearly, source is the correct synonym that Paul is trying to explain to us. Don't let it get confused in 2,000 years of translation from Greek to English and you open your dictionary and say, what is he trying to say? There's 15 definitions here. He explains it in verse number 12 very clearly. Also in verse number 5, it's very clear. Let's read verse number 5. It's very clear that women praying and preaching in the public worship assembly was the norm of the day. It's very clear. Now let me read verse 5. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. Now what's being argued here is not whether she has the right to pray or prophesy in the church. What's being argued is they're, they're fighting over how to dress when they pray and prophesy in the church. Praying and prophesy. Let me, let me see if I can help you with the word prophesy, because we're going to get it a lot next week. Prophecy, or the word prophesy, does not mean to tell the future. When this word appears in the New Testament, it means to proclaim the word of God. That's all it means, proclaim the word of God. I'm prophesying right now. I'm proclaiming the word of God and speak truth, project, pro, professing, projecting, putting out the word of God. That's what prophecy is in the New Testament, okay? So don't think it's like an Old Testament, you know, it's like Nostradamus with a magic eight ball telling the future and right thing. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about somebody who speaks truth from the Word of God. 
the women praying and proclaiming the word of God is absolutely normative in the early New Testament church. So the big question is, verse 2, I praise you that you keep the traditions. However, let me give you some corrective on one of these traditions that has caused this whole division in the congregation. What tradition did Paul teach them? Well, we know clearly what Paul taught the other Gentile churches. If we had the zero Corinthians letters, it'd be super easy just to be able to say, well, if you'll turn over to zero Corinthians chapter 6, here's what Paul said to them. We just don't have those previous letters available to us. They are lost in history somewhere. However, we do know in the same period what Paul taught the other Gentile churches down the street. So I'm going to assume that what he taught the people in Philippi and Colossae and, and the churches of Galatia is the exact same thing. In other words, if you're a church planter, you pretty much do it the same, making some cultural adaptations, but you do it similarly when you go into a community. And so here's what Paul taught the Gentile churches, Galatians 3, verse 28. In the church there is no Jew or Greek. Now, if you're a white American, that may not have an impact on you. But if you're Filipino here this morning, or an Indian, or a Mexican, or from Honduras, or Peru, or Bolivia, or from Romania, if you're not native-born American white, this has a lot of resonance, okay? And it had a lot of resonance in the early Roman Empire because sitting in the house church at Corinth, is a converted prostitute, some slaves who have now come to faith in Jesus Christ, some slave owners who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, some rich people are here, maybe Chloe and her family are the wealthy ones. There's Paul, the itinerant tent maker church planter who isn't a flashy brand name, uh, you know, he didn't come in on his Learjet, and they're all upset because he's not flashy enough for the rich people in the church. But here is a small house church, and you've got all kinds of people sitting at the table who never before had access to the gospel and the right all to pull up a chair to the table. This is a big deal. Here is the slave owner. Here's the girl who is his slave, who's now his sister in Christ. What does that dynamic play out like in church on Sunday morning? Let me mix it up even more for you. As a slave owner in Corinth, I had sexual relations with all my slaves if I want to. They're just property. It's Corinth. It's no big deal. The men had their mistresses on the side. The women had their boy toys on the side. But your wife was for bearing legitimate heirs. So imagine this. We're all sitting at Chloe's kitchen table, and here I am, the slave owner. Here's my slave that I may have abused all kinds of ways. But now I've come to faith in Jesus Christ and repented of my sins, and I'm a new man in Christ. And now I've shared the gospel with my slaves, and they're new people in Christ. And here, they sit at the same table with my wife. They had dynamics in the first century church you hadn't even imagined yet. Okay? The poor people, the rich people. And what did Paul teach them? Galatians 3.28. In Christ, meaning sitting here in this church right now, as the temple of God's Holy Spirit, there is no Jew and there is no Greek sitting here this morning. This morning, there is no American sitting here. 
They're just people who are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. There are no illegal aliens here this morning. Only legitimate children of God. Sinners saved by... That's all that's here this morning. The church has gotten a little too political on this now. Paul said there's no Jew in Greek. There is no slave or free man here this morning. Paul just eradicated all socioeconomic boundaries in the room with one stroke of his pen. And he said, this is Christ's church. There are no rich or poor here this morning. There are no slaves or free men here this morning. Watch Paul go a little bit further. And there is no male or female here this morning. There is no caste system where the boys run the show and the women are just property. We are all one in Christ. Listen, it was Christianity that freed the slaves ultimately. Read your history. It was Christianity that ultimately led to women having the right to vote. It was Christianity that made progress. That took a long time and it took far too long, far longer than it should have. How about that? But it's hard to turn an ungodly culture towards the kingdom of God. It takes time. Now Paul says to the church at Corinth, I give you the tradition I've given all the churches. There's no Jew nor Greek, there's no slave nor free, there's no male and female. We are all one in Jesus Christ. And that's what I want you to practice. Now Paul goes away and they start firing letters back and forth. The Corinthians clearly practice that equality between men and women that characterized the first century churches. When Peter was up preaching in Acts chapter 2 on the day that the Holy Spirit really empowered and launched the church of Jesus Christ forward. Listen to Peter's message as the church was launched into its mission. Acts 2, verse 16. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be at the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on which kind of people? All people. Then your sons, you want to help me right here out loud, and your daughters will prophesy, proclaim the word of God. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out on my, my spirit on my servants. In those days, both men and women will prophesy. This is normative for the launch of the church. It's so normative that by the time you get to the chapter 16 of Romans, and Paul is wrapping up the book of Romans, sending it with Phoebe the deacon to be delivered to the church at Rome. She'll have to read it before the church. She'll have to exposit it before the church. She's the first proclaimer of the book of Romans. Like Mary Magdalene was the first proclaimer of the risen Christ, the first one to the tomb, the one Jesus appeared to and said, go tell the men that Christ has risen from the dead. She's the first preacher of that. You say, why? Because things are a-changing as Jesus launches the church. And in the church of Jesus Christ, what was normative was equality. Men and women, slave and free, all races. Jesus just tore every barrier down and put us all together in the body of Christ. Praise God. The church at Corinth is following that tradition. So the men and the women are both praying and prophesying publicly in the worship... But here now is the issue. That sinful nature rises up in us. And one group wants to dominate the other group. 
and one group wants to take their freedoms too far and stick it in the face of another group. And that sinful nature rises up and wants to create disunity and try to dominate the other group. That sinful nature of ours wants to exercise all of our rights all of the time. You can't tell me what to do. I'm free in Christ. Didn't you hear Paul? We, we, we are all equal. We do whatever we want to do. That's not what Paul said. He didn't say we can do whatever we want to do. Listen, you're a free American. Can you do whatever you want to do? Try telling that to your boss tomorrow. Tell it to the police officer when he pulls you over for speeding this afternoon or blowing through a red light. Well, I can do whatever I want to do. I'm a free American. Yeah, that's not what freedom means. Freedom always have boundaries, and the boundaries are what help creates freedom. But they had taken it wrong. Paul said you're all free, but now there's division. Well, here's the problem. When or if the woman got up to lead, how does she have to dress? Well, I'll put you on the other foot. If the man gets up to lead, how does he have to dress? Because what's curious is it tells the men to, they're not allowed to cover their head. The text says the men are not allowed to cover their head. Did you read that? You're not allowed to cover your head. Yet all the Jews cover their head. Uh, anybody in here go to the Holy Land with us a few years ago? Yeah, I took you down to the Wailing Wall. And Rick, as you walked down towards the Wailing Wall, there was a security guard there, an enforcer. And he took one look at you and said, cover your head. You will not get through the gate unless you cover your head. Impossible. They'd rather shoot you and watch you bleed than let you go down there and pray with your head uncovered. And you say, I don't have my baseball cap with me. He'll, like, he'll reach under the podium and pull out a little paper hat and give it to you and say, put this on your head till you're done and leave it this site and you leave it right here and take it with you. Yeah, they're very serious about it. Yet, Paul's edict to them is the men are not to cover their head. You can scratch your head and figure that out, but it's cultural. The Jews have to cover. He's now in Gentile land over in Europe, and he tells the Gentiles, you don't cover your head, men. But to the women, he tells them the exact opposite. Now, th here's why this is confusing to us, because you don't come from a shame culture, and you don't come from a veiling culture. So anytime we talk about veiling, and you're just like, what are we even talking about right now? Because it's not your problem, it's not your culture. This is Ezekiel's problem to figure out over on the border of Pakistan. He has to deal with this this week. This is, this is what Cotille deals with this week. This is what Shilning deals with every Saturday when the church meets. This is normal. They're dealing with this every day. But it's not your issue and it's not your problem. If we had the zero Corinthians letters, it would be very easy for us to recreate this conversation. I don't know exactly, but maybe the questions were like this. Play, role, role play here with me a minute. Okay, Paul, if we're equal then why do we maintain distinctions between the apparel of men and the apparel of women in the assembly? That's a legitimate question. Do you see their question? If you've proclaimed us all equal, there's no male nor female, then why do I dress in a male version of clothes and you dress in a female version of clothes? Shouldn't we be proclaiming something different by our dress in the assembly? Some type of androgyny? I mean, what would that be? Some type of clothes that could be both. Should we, all wear should we all wear robes? We pass them out when you come through the door. Everybody put on a robe so we can't tell who's men and who's women. Because we don't want to magnify that this morning. We just all want to focus on being one in Christ. Maybe that was their issue. Maybe their question was this. If we're equal, why should some pray and prophesy with their heads covered while some are told 
to pray and prophesy with their heads uncovered? There's a legitimate question. If we're all, if there's no male or female, then why does one cover and one uncover? What's, what's up with that? Aren't you being hypocritical, Paul? Is this a double standard? If we're all equal, have we then lost our gender distinctions now that we are in Christ? Have we already become like the angels in God's eyes? Neither male nor female. Well, that's also a legitimate question and probably very much where their minds were going at this point. Maybe somebody said to Paul, okay, Paul, since we're all one in Christ, and there's no male or female, and we're not bond or free, and we're not Greek or, or Jew or Gentile or anything, why do we even have to adhere to cultural standards? So if we're all one in Christ, can we not abandon cultural customs in light of our new identity in Christ? Does that make sense? That could very well have been their question. And we will never know because we don't have the zero Corinthians letters. But that's the gist of what's happening in the opening of chapter number 11. Now what's not confusing and what's crystal clear for us this morning is the conclusion Paul draws and the corrective he gives them. Watch his conclusion again in verse number 11. And let's see if anybody's confused about this. In the Lord, however, in the Lord, however... Woman is not independent of man. I know I taught you we were all equal in Christ. No male, no female, no Jew, no Greek. I know I taught you that. That is the tradition of the church. However, in the Lord, the women are not independent of the men. And man is not independent of woman. For just as, now watch him go all the way back to Genesis. For just as woman came from man, an allusion to Adam and Eve now, just as woman came from man, and all the men in the room in Corinth were like, yeah, that's right. Just as woman came from man, now watch Paul reverse the argument, which man in church this morning didn't come out of a woman? Show of hands, test two people. Now Paul's got them, doesn't he? One group's trying to assert domination over the other. You see, we are this and we are that. And he's like, yeah, yeah, woman came from man, you got it. And which one of you men doesn't have a mother? Oh, you came from a woman? You were suckled on the breasts of your mother? You came from a woman? So you wouldn't have made it without a woman. You wouldn't have been here on this earth without a woman. You see his argument now hitting home with them. Now watch him make an even bigger argument. And all things come from where? Yeah, we all belong to God, so can you shut up your bickering? This is what he's really getting at. He's really saying we can figure this out. Now, in English, we have a word for not dependent on, and it's interdependence. In English, we have this word interdependence. It means we need each other. We are interdependent upon one another, and we are all dependent upon God. Amen? And you know who designed it that way? We are this way by the very hand of God, designed to be interdependent and to be dependent upon God himself. Now, here's what's clear. Head coverings in the worship service is not our issue in Fort Worth, Texas in this modern era. It is not our issue. It's somebody else's issue to deal with in Asia right now and in Eastern Europe right now. Elijah has to deal with this in the churches of Romania all the time. 
they're still debating over the head covering and dividing churches. Listen, if we go to Romania, who, so Alan, here's Alan nodding his head. You've been to Romania with me, and if this, we were in Romania right now, Tammy, you'd be sitting in the men's section because all the men sit here and all the women sit here. You don't sit with your wife in a Romanian church. Women on one side, men on the other, gypsies in the balcony. That's the way the system works. And you know what message we have to preach to them? This message, because they've got it all messed up. It's disunity in the church. We're all factionalized by factions and who's wearing a head covering and who's not and who's male or who's female and who's Romanian legit and who's second and third class citizens. It's all, it's all messed up. And in America, we don't do it so overtly like that, but we do it more subtly. We do it more subtly. We do it in other ways. Let me just draw a few quick conclusions because I need to get to the Lord's Supper section. No one is to dominate another group in the church of Jesus Christ. Men, you're not to dominate the women. That is not your role. That is fall like Genesis 3, fall of Adam, sinful behavior. After the fall, God said to Eve, he's going to rule over you now. It's written in the cards now. He's going to try to dominate you. You're going to try to dominate him. And what was a beautiful marriage is going to turn into World War II. Because that's what sinful nature does. And that's what Paul's saying. Men, you're not to dominate women. Now that you are liberated, you're not to flip the shoe on the other foot and say, okay, we paid for it for 2,000 years. By the way, we'll get you back now. And that's also sinful behavior and causes disunity in the church. We are to all be interdependent. And we are all to be unified together in Jesus Christ because we are all born of God. And in light of Paul's thesis, you have to reach some conclusions. Let me help you reach a few thesis conclusions. We are not to dishonor one another by how we present ourselves in the public worship. Now, I expect to get at least 15 questions for the podcast tonight. And we'll, we'll podcast all the stuff I don't have time to cover. And there are some good questions you should be thinking about as you read through this. Send them on in. We'll answer them. How the women let down their hair in the temple of Bob. We'll talk about it on the podcast if you want. But the big conclusions are these. We are not to erase gender distinctions in the church of God, even though we are one in Christ. I'm still a male. You're still a female. You're still a male. You're still a female. We haven't lost our gender distinctions just because we've received Jesus Christ as our Savior and Paul didn't say your gender distinctions would fall off. What he said was, what he said was, you are all one in Christ. You're equal, not erased. Be who you are. Paul just taught this a few chapters ago. Whatever state you were called in, stay in that state and be who you are. Because God made you fearfully and wonderfully. We're not to exercise all of our rights all the time. There's a conclusion you can draw from this passage. We are not to exercise all of our rights all of the time. Do you have the right to speak in church? You absolutely do. It needs to be done in the right way. Absolutely. You're not going to exercise all your rights all the time. The church, here's a big conclusion I drew from this passage. The church has to make con constant adaptations to culture constant adaptations to culture why when Paul concludes this section well you know what he concludes here's his conclusion of this section the early church had this 
custom of equality in the worship, but the culture out there also had some standards that we had to be cognitive of. So here's what Paul told them. The women are to cover their heads in the worship, and the men are to make sure there is no head covering in the worship. This is the cultural tradition. It's the only tradition. Adhere to it and stop your petty bickering about it. That is his conclusion to this section, okay? So why did Paul say, go ahead and cover your heads, women? Because that was the cultural tradition. It's not your cultural tradition. That's why we don't observe it. So what it tells us is this. The, the church has to be wise. In other words, if we were going to go plant a church in uh, Nepal this morning, uh, mo uh, Sunday is Monday to them. They'd all be at work. So we have to plant the church to have a worship service on Saturday because that's their Sunday in Nepal. You say, well, that's idolatrous. It's the only day available for people to worship. If you want to be hard-nosed and say, well, we're only going to worship on Sunday, well, then you'll be, have nobody at your church worshiping. Why? They're at work. It's Monday there to them. Does that make sense? We have to be wise enough to make cultural adjustments so that the gospel can accomplish its purpose without hindrance now we come to the second part of this and i can think i can move pretty quickly here this is the drunken and divisive communion you heard me right the drunken and divisive communion the remaining five paragraphs run from verse 17 to 34 they deal with the tradition of communion that has now run into the ditch of disunity they've turned something that's supposed to be unifying and togetherness into factionalized clickishness let me read verse number 17 now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, gosh, I don't know where to start. I hear that when you come together as a church, there are, underlined it in your journal, divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be, underline it, factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, notice this, come together, togetherness. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Yeah, you're doing something down there. You're calling it the Lord's Supper, but trust me, it's not the Lord's Supper. In other words, if you baptize people who are not yet saved, you're not baptizing them. At least in our mentality, you're not... It's not a profession of your salvation. You see what I'm saying in the, in the Baptist sense that you practice in your tradition. You're just getting people wet and doing something, but you're not really. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're doing a meal. You're going through some sacramental thing here, but are you really? Because you're, you're, you're doing the tradition, but it's broken and you're worse off for doing whatever you're doing. Look at verse 21. For at the meal... Each one eats his own supper. Okay, so here's what you need to know. This was first instituted, and I'll talk about it in a minute, but around 30 to 33 AD by Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. About 25 years have passed, and in those 25 years, they have practiced communion when they come together. And they practice it the way Jesus practiced it with his disciples. They had a full-on meal. Y'all read the passages and... Matthew and Mark and, and, and Luke about this. They had a full-on meal. On the night Jesus was betrayed, they're eating what's 
likely the Passover meal, but they're having a full-on meal. And when they started that meal, Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And they had a full meal. And at the end of the supper, he said, this cup is the New Testament, my blood, new covenant, my blood, drink you all of it. And they, and they drank the cup. It, it was a full-on meal. And the Lord took what might have been the Passover or some meal, and he turned it into a new tradition for the New Testament church. And he told them, as often you do it, do this in remembrance of me, and, and, and et cetera. Now, for 30 years at least, and probably well beyond, the early churches practiced the Lord's Supper, communion, as a full-on meal. Now, it's curious when people fight me about making changes to bring us in line with Scripture. No one ever throws this in my face as a pastor and says, I demand a full-on feast for communion. No one's ever said that to me, funny enough. I demand a full-on potluck blowout for the Lord's Supper because that's the way they took the Lord's Supper in the early churches, okay? Now, what happened here was that practice gone awry. Now what happened is, Paul said, you're having a feast, but it doesn't appear to be the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, verse 21, each of you eats what? His own supper. It had turned into this potluck where you, you had specialized menus. Imagine if we were going to have a meal right now. And we're just about to take communion together as a church. But, but imagine now if the Peters reached down under their feet and opened a picnic basket. And pulled out a bottle of Cabernet and two wine glasses. And then reached in there and pulled out like a whole platter of fried chicken. You, you know. And the sound, uh, the smell wafts through the room. And over here the McMurdo's reach down and pull out their little uh, tote bag and open it. And out comes, you know, food and drink. That's a little closer to what's happening right here. Everyone said, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And so they, they turned it into this full-on feast. Let me keep reading. So one person is hungry. You, all brought, you knew we were taking communion. We blasted this out this week. Everybody brought your food, right? You all brought your food, right? See, you'd be hungry this morning if we were having a feast. Because you're somehow either not in the know or you're poor, which was the issue here. There are people here who are legitimately poor. They don't have their own. Some of them are slaves. They only have the portion their master gives them. No, they didn't bring a bucket of KFC to the potluck Lord's Supper. They don't have 40 bucks to throw down on, on, on this uh, feast moment so he says you're eating your own meal and and watch this verse 21 everyone eats his own supper one person is hungry one pole while another person gets what now you ought to be able to draw a lot of conclusions from this verse anybody want to draw a few anybody want to draw anything do you think they early Christian church drank alcoholic beverages? Yes or no? Yeah, I think you've assessed that correctly. Do you think the early church has used uh, fermented wine in communion? Yes or no? Yeah, then it would be hard to get drunk off of something else, wouldn't it? I mean, here's what's happening. You've turned into this, and what happened is these people are hungry, and these people are over here just like Henry VIII with a, you know, a turkey leg, 
at, 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 a, at a big stein, and they're going to town, and over here people are hungry and their stomachs are grumbling. How is this unity? How is this what God intended? How is this upholding the memorial of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? 23, 22. Do you not have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? How? You think Paul's worked up? And he's worked up championing the poor and the slave and the person who's being dismissed by the wealthy elites. He's championing the rights of the little man right now and saying, what are you doing? There is neither slave nor master right now. What are you doing? There is no socioeconomic moment here. This is about unity. Why would you humiliate the other church members this way? Why would you dishonor the house of God this way? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. All right, quickly, let me draw some conclusions here. Communion was a real meal. Somebody should be asking right now, when did that change? My answer, I don't know. We haven't been able to figure it out. We haven't been able to figure it out, Pastor David. But somewhere along the way it changed and turned into what we're going to do this morning, a more of symbolic, sacramental moment. We think it probably had to do with the fact that we're dealing with the house church here and now you see how impractical it would be to do that with this size group of people. So as the churches expanded and grew, they had to adapt somehow communion to be able to be a participatory moment for everyone in a unified uh, way. Now, I, I can give you an illustration. These were house churches. So we'll just use our house, for example. We don't have a small house. we got a medium-sized house. But at our house... Uh, if the church was meet, Corinth was meeting in our house, here's how we'd have to do it. We can put eight people at our dining room table. Okay? We can put uh, six people at our kitchen table. They're in the kitchen. And we can seat about 20 out on the patio. We have some patio furniture and some lawn chairs and a couple of stumps and stools. And we put about 20 people out on the patio. Here's what the Corinthians did. They took the four wealthiest couples in the church and put them at the dining room table. They took three couples, middle class, and put them at the kitchen table. And they put the 20 poor people out on the patio. It's a house church. We're about to have a feast. And the only way we can seat you is to seat you in this way. At the dining room table, they're having prime rib, roasted potatoes, glazed carrots, caramelized Brussels sprouts, generous amounts of Pinot, Cabernet, and Merlot. In the kitchen table, they're eating fried chicken, mashed potatoes, a few keystones. Out on the patio, some of them have pimento cheese sandwiches, some of them have ham, few have bologna, and some of the poorest have absolutely nothing. Do you see why Paul did not praise them? Now, what I just described, do you have the picture in your mind? They said... We're keeping the tradition of the Lord's Supper. We've got eight people in the dining room, like Henry VIII, and middle class and poor class. You're not keeping the Lord's Supper. 
Now, do you understand? You're, not, you're doing something, but you're not keeping the Lord's supper. You're eating your own supper. And how dare you divide and cause this abuse in the church of Jesus Christ. Let me take the new, two next paragraphs together. For I received from the Lord that I passed to you on the night he was betrayed. The Lord took bread. He hearkens all the way back now to the night of the arrest. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, by your participating, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's what Paul told the Corinthian church. I'm giving to you of what's of utmost importance. We are to keep this tradition correct and get it back on track. Amen. And he said, I'm going to tell you how Jesus did it. And that's what Jesus told me to do. And that's now what I'm going to tell you to do. The tradition of communion comes directly from the Lord. It's what he did with his disciples the night of the crucifixion. It's what you and I are going to do with our disciples 2,000 years later at Cornerstone Church. The bread is Christ's body. The wine represents the new covenant which comes to us through the blood of Christ. And it is a memorial calling all of us to just silence our minds and phones for a moment. And just for one moment in our life, pause and remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What Easter is annually, communion is every time we take it. What Christmas is once a year for some, communion is for us every time we take it. Pause, push everything aside for a moment, focus your heart and mind on the new covenant of Jesus that he brought to us through his blood. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Remember me. Remember what I did for you. And what I'm saying to you is remember the gospel. The gospel is what we're talking about. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What was the early church creed? Do you remember it? If you, let's say it. Christ died for our sins and was... Christ rose from the grave. Yes, he was. Hundreds and hundreds of witnesses. And that's what you're to remember at communion. What Jesus did for us. Now watch Paul sum it up with the words, so then, verse 27. So then, let me draw my conclusion. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Underline those two words in your journal. In an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way and let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For whosoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, what is the body of Christ? Without recognizing the body, eats and drinks damnation to himself. So this is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. If you guys would get your house in order, we wouldn't have to chew you out. And it basically is what he's coming down to. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Now, I want you to think about these verses as we wrap. What was Paul's warning about taking communion? Be careful now. For if you eat and drink in a certain way, 
And all of you who come from Baptist uh, traditions, let me challenge you for a minute. Was his warning about participating with unconfessed sin and therefore being unworthy? It's what I was taught incorrectly. And it's what I taught incorrectly. Or was his warning about participating in an unworthy manner a divisive, drunk, and disorderly manner of taking communion? Here's what confused hundreds of years of Christians. Right here. Put this verse up in KJV. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, say the word, with no qualification, is guilty, is guilty. Now, if you were raised in my tradition, this was very confusing for us. We taught and were taught that if you participated in communion and you were unworthy, you would be condemned to sickness and death and God would strike you dead. For you, communion has been a terrifying experience. It's really challenged you. And that's why Baptists are not really excited about the Lord's Supper. Now, you may be raised in other evangelical traditions that I wasn't raised in. You probably have your own stories. But when the KJV translated this, they translated it in a way that made it in a personal appeal. That you could eat or drink unworthily. Let me just make you draw some conclusions this morning. Who here is worthy of God's grace and mercy? What does the scripture say to us? Here's what it says. But God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's what the scripture says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Individual worthiness. is not what he's talking about. If individual worthiness is a prerequisite to communion, then none of us could ever participate in communion because we are all unworthy. And you say, well, that means, you know, people who are saved but have unconfessed sin. Listen, you sin as fast as you can confess it. Even your confession needs to be confessed over. And if anybody in here has a very serious prayer life, you understand what I'm talking about. You'll find yourself sinning while you're trying to pray. So who could ever, you'd have to say, Father, forgive me all of my sins. Shove it in your mouth so fast that you're, you couldn't sin between amen and I've got it in my mouth. It's not feasible and that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is warning them not to participate. Can you go back to CSB on this verse? Paul is warning them not to participate in an unworthy manner. Can you guys find that? Unworthy manner. And that's what your journal says. What is the unworthy manner? The thing he just talked about for a whole chapter. Socioeconomic division, shaming the poor, dividing the congregation up, the haves and the have-nots, you know, the big shots and the, and the no shots. And the, He said, that's not equality. That's not communion. Here's the conclusions I draw. In communion... We are not to divide the congregation. We are to all eat together. Anybody agree or disagree? This is why we didn't take communion during COVID quarantine. And I got beat up. I'll let you know. With no uncertain terms. 
many church members harangued me. Why are we taking communion? We all log on and take communion because that's not what communion's about. Communion is about being together. Communion is about being one. Communion is about all assembling together and not dividing the congregation into little groups, but pausing for a moment to remember the gospel and remember that the death and resurrection of Christ has forged us into one body. We are the eyes, the ears, the hands. We are the body of Christ. In communion, we're not to give to some and withhold from others. In communion, we are not to set up a class system. These are all unworthy manners. And this is what will get you into trouble with God. Communion is about we, not me. We take communion with the whole body in view because that's what communion is about. Co-union, co-unity. Community in unity. Ladies and gentlemen, we are a covenant community. And every time you take communion with this church, it's a rededication ceremony is what it is. It's a covenant renewal ceremony that you are all in for Jesus and you are all in for the church, which is his body. I hope you feel good about that. Let's stand together and take communion.